Good evening. Today's scripture reads Mark 15, 21 through 32. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from, this, from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a school. When they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which to take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it on, in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. <clears throat> so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others and he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we, will, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. These are the words of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Chelsea. And if you haven't already, please uh, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32 will be our primary consideration this evening. Mark 15, verse 21 through 32. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Always good to open up God's Word with you, especially on a day when uh, churches all over the world have already and will continue to open up to passages just like this to consider the very same thing together, uh, the death of Christ. Um, the Scriptures are teaching us to see with spiritual vision, with faith, to see uh, beyond just what we see with our own eyes or hear with our own ears, but to see with our hearts, so to speak. We're, we're, we're trained, if you will, uh, through the Scriptures to see beyond what is plain, to see what is beyond just on the surface level, and to ask questions and to even interrogate what's going on uh, beneath the surface, what's going on beyond what we can just simply merely quickly perceive. And on Palm Sunday, if you remember, we saw and watch Jesus, if you will, ride into the city as a king. But it's not just about victory. It, it was about virtue. It was about the way he was coming, not just that he was coming. And on Good Friday, today, we'll watch Jesus die. He came as a king and he'll die as a savior. But not just about death. The story is not just about someone who dies. It's about someone who's demonstrating what love looks like. This is a peculiar and an important thing for us to talk about, but that's what I'd like to talk about. I want to talk about how the death of Christ actually defines love for us, albeit, I think, in an unexpected way. See, to consider this, we'll look at a single line from Mark's gospel account. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the passage that we just read, we're told that there were these social and religious leaders who actually were instrumental in getting him up on the cross and making sure that he died. This is what they say to one another. They say, and rather to Jesus, together, they say, he saved others and he cannot save himself. He saved others, he cannot save himself. That's what I'd like to talk about. I want to talk about what exactly did they mean by that? 
What is it that they are saying when they say that? And wonder with you if they're right. Are they right? See, to help us, we'll consider these words in two parts. First, we'll look at that first portion. We said he saved others, understand what they mean by that. And then we'll look at he couldn't or can't save himself. And so it's to that end, I pray that I'll be available to God's Spirit. So let's pray, ask for his help, and then we'll continue together. Heavenly Father, we do need your help uh, because without your help, all we'll see is what's on the surface. All we'll hear is a story recorded in history, which is good and helpful and important to remember. And yet we uh, ask for eyes to see and ears to hear by the power of your Spirit who illuminates the Scriptures. That means that uh, ultimately if we're to make sense in our hearts of what you have to say to us, we need help. Uh, We need help to go back thousands of years. We need help to understand context. We need help to understand Uh, the mind of God, something that is truly beyond us without your spirit. And so we pray that your spirit would speak to us, your your kids, your your sons and daughters, and us, your son's church. So it'd be good for our souls, good for our city, and glorifying to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So Mark tells us, uh, essentially in his account, that Jesus' final hours, his final moments are filled with mockery. They're filled with mockery. Let's look at it again. Mark chapter 15, verses 24 through 32. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them and cast lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And when they crucified two robbers, or rather, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. Verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So Jesus endures these waves of grief, if you will, mean-spirited, hurtful accusations. I don't know about you, but one person says one mean thing about me, my day is ruined. Even if they say something that could be interpreted really very kindly, I'll probably take the worst interpretation and I'll be a wreck all day long. This is overwhelming. It's overwhelming to see the waves of grief, the waves of mean-spirited and hurtful accusations. In fact, I think for many of us, we're so used to Jesus being treated this way, we don't take time to pause and think like human beings for a second and go, man, that would be devastating. These are people you walked with. You probably had meals at their houses, right? You knew their names. You knew their family's story. You, you knew the worst things about them, the things that they kept from the public light. How much more the Son of God knows exactly what's in their heart. And here he is receiving accusations. And it's noteworthy. There's a theme with all of these insults. See, whether it's the sign above his head or the passerby or the robbers that are on either side of him or the chief priest, they are all perplexed by Jesus' death. They can't understand it. They don't understand it. Or perhaps more precisely, they think his death undermines everything that he's been about. 
They think the scene that is unfolding in front of them calls into question everything that Jesus has ever done, everything that he has said, all of the acts he has performed up to this point, they believe is undone by the fact that Jesus now hangs and dies on a cross. In other words, they think Jesus' death exposes him as a fraud. It undermines everything that he's been about. See, only the religious leaders, though, they admit something. And if, we're, if we read it too quickly, we'll miss it. So we'll slow down and make sure we don't miss this. See, while they can't quite square his impending death with everything about him, they have to admit he's done a lot of good. This is actually one of the first places that they really admit something of Jesus' valor and virtue. He's helped other people. He's been an agent for so much good. They say he's saved others. He's saved people. They're more right than they realize. They are more right than they realize. But what exactly do they mean? Jesus helped, healed, cared for a ton of different people in a ton of different ways. We know as we look through the Gospels that Jesus saved people physically. Over and over again, he healed people of physical ailments. And so this is what they have in mind. He fed people. He raised people from the dead. He physically saved people. But he also did so morally. Jesus saved people morally. Regularly, Jesus was teaching his disciples and crowds a new way of thinking, a new way of being human, a new way of understanding the law. He reframes the scriptures around their heart. So he saves people morally to see and understand the things of God in a fresh and new and real way. And he also saved people spiritually. He forgave sin. See, he wasn't just teaching them something different. We see throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospels in particular, that Jesus speaks with this kind of divine authority, that he doesn't just say, here's the way to live, but he says, if you haven't lived this way, I forgive you. That's a whole other layer of salvation. So he saves physically, he saves morally, he saves spiritually. So when the chief priest said that he saved others, likely they have all of this in mind. They have all of the multifaceted different ways that Jesus has saved which then leads to their mockery. You see, now it's Jesus who needs to be saved. Now it's Jesus who needs to be saved physically. His body is dying. It's Jesus who needs to be saved morally. His teachings seem like they're in jeopardy. He needs to be saved spiritually. His soul is waning, and he's crying out to his heavenly Father. They think Jesus' death exposes him. In fact, They even piously say, look again at verse 32. They had the audacity to say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. These are dudes who over and over and over again have seen the power of Jesus' words and his acts, his saving power physically, morally, spiritually. And they're like, they have the audacity to say, if you come down, now we'll believe. Now we'll believe. They're mocking him. See, they not only think that Jesus ought to save himself, but they even go, we'll believe if you do it. Can you hear the tone? Come down now, we'll believe if you do it. In other words, they're saying seeing, if we see something, we'll believe. And so what they're missing is what we often miss, that faith is about seeing with the heart, not just the eyes. Yet at the same time, I think they're more right than they realize See, it makes perfect sense that they're perplexed by Jesus' suffering. At first glance, the cross makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense. In fact, one of the things, if you've grown up in the church, the cross makes so much sense to us that we miss its power. 
We expect it so much, especially around a holiday like this or a memorial like this, that we don't pause long enough to consider how utterly nonsensical it really seems. See, we can sympathize, I think, with their unbelief or their disbelief in this moment if we lean into it a little bit more. See, underneath the surface, I think we too can wonder about the genuineness of all that Jesus claims if all of his ministry, all of his divine claims, all of his saving power, if it ends with this moment where he can't even save himself. Perhaps this is what you can't quite square with the Christian message. Perhaps this is why the Bible has made no sense to you. How in the world could the one who claims to be the Savior need saving and ultimately die? After all, this is what we learn in the modern world, that you are your brand, right? You are your brand. See, in principle, we follow people who practice what they preach, who perform what they promise. You know somebody is not a real influencer if they say they can get you thousands of followers, but they got dozens, right? You're like, I don't think you can, I don't think you can deliver that many followers. We, we naturally distrust an unhealthy doctor or an unhealthy counselor. These are things that are sort of instinctive to us. We're skeptical of a judge, perhaps, who breaks the law. We question spiritual leaders who are arrogant. If you don't embody what you speak, if you don't live out what you are saying that you do, similarly then, I think when we're honest, we should instinctively be a little unsettled about a so-called Savior who dies. Saviors who can't save themselves don't seem like saviors at all. And I think our collective skepticism goes even deeper because this is what Christians are really good at right now. You're like, Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. Three days later, you got to lean in. Stay with me. You only understand Sunday if you lean in on Friday, if we really allow this to settle in. Let's push a little bit more at our skepticism. Have you ever thought about how undone Jesus leaves the world? Walk with me for a minute. As Jesus dies... Slavery is still a formidable backbone of first century life, of industry, of the economy, of social life. As Jesus dies, women are still systematically oppressed throughout the ancient world. As Jesus dies, tons of people have yet to hear the good news. In fact, it's really clear that there's about 120 people who are voting yes to Jesus as he dies. There's so many more people who need to hear the gospel. As Jesus dies, people are on their own deathbeds. People are suffering and they're sick. They're lonely, they're hungry, they're codependent, they're depressed, they're poor, they're greedy, they're arrogant. The world seems kind of like a mess as Jesus dies. You ever thought about this? What kind of Savior leaves a world in such a mess? When Jesus dies, there's so much left, so much saving left to be done. Therefore, I think it ought to be really challenging to square Jesus saving others with his ostensible inability to save himself. Do you see what the Pharisees, what the scribes and, and this chief priest, what they're wrestling with? It's what we all wrestle with. Someone with that kind of power letting himself die also seems like an incredible waste. There's so much more good that you could have done. Don't we feel like this when we see things unraveling in our world? Like, Jesus, do you know about this? If you're good, if you're powerful, if you really are who you say you are, if you've saved all of these people, why don't you curb gun violence in our city? Why don't you end homelessness? 
Why, why don't you transform a city that obviously has a really sore reputation throughout the world? Are, are you with me, church? Like there, this, when we are really honest about brokenness in our world, we should wrestle a little bit with Jesus' claims as Savior. This is what we must do. His death seems to expose him. And the prevalence of evil seems to expose him. That is, unless his death is somehow part of his saving act. Unless a truer and better salvation is secured only through death. Unless through his death, a holistic salvation that includes the physical and the moral and the spiritual. Unless all of those things are included. What do you see, bud? Hi. I bet that's an awesome picture. See, unless those social and religious leaders were more right than they realize, then all of this is undone. All of this is exposed. See, Jesus actually prepared his disciples for this paradoxical moment. This is why he's so good. He's like, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to prepare you for it. See, more than once, there are three primary moments in Mark's gospel where Jesus predicts his death and he helps to prepare his disciples for. And in Mark 8, Peter actually rebukes Jesus when the idea comes up. He said, this is not a good idea. He tells him not to die. Like the leaders there at the cross who ridiculed Jesus, Peter says essentially, you should save yourself. You saved all these people. You should save yourself too. Don't die. It will expose you. This will be bad for the brand. Peter knows this is not going to be good. Look at it with me, Mark chapter 8. If you're still in Mark 15, flip back to the left. Mark chapter 8, verses 33 through 35. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, that's Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Notice the principle. Earthly logic says to save our lives, we should protect our lives. We should protect ourselves. We should avoid sacrifice and suffering and we should especially protect ourselves from death. We should save ourselves. And that makes sense, right? To live, don't die. That's the logic. That makes sense. But Jesus says the exact opposite. He says something so counterintuitive that if we're not careful, I think we'll miss it. He says to save your life, lose it. To truly live, he says, you have to die. You have to die. What's that mean? Well, it means that on the cross, Jesus isn't exposed as a fraud or a hypocrite. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The cross actually represents Jesus practicing exactly what he has been preaching. He's living by dying. He's gaining by giving. He's winning by losing. Do you see? The religious and social leaders were more right than they realized. Jesus saved others because he didn't save himself. He said, you've saved others, saved you. you can't save yourself. And Jesus is essentially saying, yes, that's right. Said differently, if he had saved himself, he could not have saved others. That's not how salvation works. 
Jesus, therefore, is not held to the cross by his limitations. He's held to the cross by his love. He's held to the cross by his love for you, not because he lacked an ability, but because he was filled with affection for you and for me, for others. See, this is where we realize what's really going on in the Pharisees, what's really going on in the religious teachers, and what really goes on in us. See, because the cross does not expose Jesus, it exposes us. The cross does not expose him as a fraud, it exposes me as a fraud. See, along with the first century naysayers, it's our sin, our need, our weakness, our brokenness, which we clearly perceive when we look at the cross, and that's terrifying. So one of our rebuttals is like, Jesus, save yourself, because I don't like what this is showing me. I don't like what this is exposing. Jesus, if you need saving, if you are going to meet this demise, then we are too. Because I know what you've done. I know you've saved others, and I know I can't do what you've done. Do you see it exposes us? See, though they knew Jesus saved others, they still were wrestling with this desire to save themselves, and don't we all? See, whether physically, morally, spiritually, we still try to save ourselves all the time. Yet what the cross does is it disproves our belief in our self-preservation at every measure. Hear this from preacher Fleming Rutledge. She explains in her book, The Crucifixion. She says, from beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testify that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, so irredeemable from within that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. See, the cross exposes us. Our need is so extraordinary. Think about this, church, that no less than the Son of the living God has to take on flesh and hang on a Roman cross for your sins and mine. That's how severe the problem is. That's how broken we are. That's how much in need we are. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus saved us by not saving himself. This leads us back to the world that Jesus leaves undone. See, I think one of the reasons that we're so perplexed by this undone world is because we're not really sure what to do with all of this. We're not really sure what to do to rectify the problems. I mean, all you have to do is hang around for a couple election cycles, and it's sort of like the same ideas every time, right? And I don't mean to be pessimistic, I just mean to be really pessimistic, okay? That it does seem like that. In other words, we're not really sure how to fix this thing. This is what the cross does too. It not only highlights all of this problem, but it highlights we can't save ourselves. See, while Jesus left this world undone, he leaves something behind, you and me. And that's, that's a, there's a lot of tension in that. But he doesn't just leave us to ourselves. He actually leaves us with this power and this posture by which the world needs to experience healing. In other words, that the way that Jesus has saved us is the way he commissions us to love and to heal the world. See, the cross exposes us, but it also heals us. It puts us back together again. It exposes the wound and it heals the wound at one and the same time. Jesus leaves us, the people of God, a way of saving, helping, loving, which has been shaped by the cross itself. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us 
hear this, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's how we're supposed to walk. I think this is why we don't really like the cross very much, is because we know instinctively as followers of Jesus, that's how I'm supposed to live. In fact, that's the only way to love. See, Christ's love for us is meant to shape our love for others. In fact, all real love is self-giving. This is why relationships are so hard. They're so hard because it's about dying. Let me explain. In remaking the world, we're introduced to a number of different kinds of relationship, and all of them ask us to die. In fact, to truly walk in maturity and health, we have to die. Marriage is like death. Popularly, we try to get around it by saying, no, it's about compromise. Compromise is about trying to hang on to your life and lose as little as possible. What the scriptures teach is that marriage is about your death. The scriptures are explicit that a man and a woman joined together, two have become one. Two individuals have died to an old way of being and have come together into a new way of being. It's not only marriage, but parenting. Parenting is like death. Parenting is refusing to save yourself. Pastor Tim Keller highlights this directly as he correlates uh, children's independence and maturity with our willful sacrifice of our autonomy. He says, the only way that children will grow beyond their dependency into self-sufficient adults is for you, you and I as parents, to essentially abandon our independence for about 20 years or so. When we abandon our independence and give ourselves to our children, that is the only chance they have to grow up and be some semblance of human and independent and life-giving in their late 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond, right? But it's not only marriage and parenting. Friendship is like death. See, we might think friendship is simply about sharing interests, but last year, David Brooks wrote a column for the New York Times and explained that friendship goes well beyond just being with somebody that you like being around. He noted that real friendship transforms our view of self. It transforms our view of the world. It even transforms our desires. You know that friend that brings something out in you that you didn't know that you possessed? A kind of ability and a kind of joy, a kind of love that you didn't know was in you. They drew it out of you. You know that friend that you are willing to say no to something you'd rather do to hang out with them? That kind of friendship, essentially what you're doing is you're learning that friendship is about dying to yourself in isolation and being reborn as someone within a community. Forgiveness is like death. Forgiving is refusing to save yourself when in many respects you have every earthly right to. Because every time someone sins against you, every time someone sins against me, a cost is endured. Whether that cost is simply the breach of trust, or if it's an actual wound, or if they've actually ruined something that you own, you always endure a cost when sin takes place. Professor Miroslav Wolf explains that forgiveness then is not about ignoring that cost and saying, let's just move on, I've forgiven you, but it's naming that cost and saying, I'm willing to carry that burden and not hold it over your head. Forgiveness then is like death. It's articulating the cost and being willing to endure it. In all of these ways, and many more I'm sure, the world is being remade one relationship at a time as we agree to die. As we agree to die in marriage, to die in parenting, to die in friendship, to die in community, 
to die to the life that we knew, to die in forgiveness. See, real love always requires death. One relationship at a time, one family at a time, one moment of grace at a time. We're seeing the world that Jesus may have left undone at the cross continually remade in and through his power every single day, in particular through his church. So you see, the religious and social leaders were more right than they realized. That's precisely how salvation worked. He did not save others because, or rather, he did not save himself because he was saving others. And this is the way that Christ is bringing his saving work to completion through us, his people, through the power of the cross, shaping a love in us that is willing to die to ourselves every single day in every single moment, in all of these various relationships, because I think what we ought to learn too is that we do not live by holding on to our life. We live and find healing by dying to ourselves as God in Christ has died for us. So Heavenly Father, we ask for your help in this, because ultimately that's, well, it's really scary. It's scary to think about laying down our lives in a way that reflects the cross. It's uncomfortable. It's disorienting. It's costly. And so we ask for your help as we look to the cross this evening. Would you shape afresh in us in whatever relationship that you've brought to mind, would you shape in us a willing to lay down our rights? To lay down our preferences, to lay down our will so that salvation and healing and love would flourish and thrive in this, your world, that you are remaking through the death of your son, through the death of your people. Because one day, one day we know all of that death, all of that self-giving will result in resurrection and life. And so it's to that end that we worship you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.